We're going to read from God's Word now. We're reading from John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Cyphus, the high priest that year. Cyphus was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Well, uh, good morning everyone. It's uh, great to see you all. It's uh, great to be up here in front of you again after a few, uh, few weeks recovering from some frustrating health issues. Uh, I'm not feeling too bad. I might hold on to the lectern a bit tighter than normal, but uh, it's all good. And, uh, and isn't it also good, in fact, isn't it great to be able to, uh, to open God's Word together this morning? So, uh, so you might recall that, uh, that late last year, uh, we had a series of sermons called Gentle and Lowly, inspired by the book of the same name, uh, written by Dane Ortland. And the point of that series was to look not so much at what Jesus did, but at who Jesus is. We focused on the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers like us. And so as we think about the events of Easter today, uh, and also next Friday and Sunday, we want to do something similar to that. We're going to look at three passages, all from the Gospel of John, and we're going to consider not only how they describe the things that happened, but also how they reveal the heart of our Lord. And as the title suggests, they will particularly focus on His 
compassion. But you know, I think compassion, compassion is something that is in very short supply in the world today. Compassion can be defined as sympathy and concern for the troubles and suffering of others, a feeling that motivates you to care and to take action to help those in need. But we don't see much compassion in the Russians and their leader as they attack and slaughter their Ukrainian neighbours. We don't see much compassion in the culture of outrage that is overtaking us as people are called out and cancelled for any opinion that contradicts the woke mindset of our day. We don't see much compassion in our own society as everyone seems far too busy with their own rights, their own pleasures, their own ambitions in order to care for anyone else. And so we may well wonder whether there's any genuine sympathy, concern and care left in this world. My friends, when we feel burdened and weary, facing all kinds of struggles and hardships in our own lives, we may well wonder where can we go to seek compassion. Well, that's what we're thinking about this morning as we look together at John 18, verses 1 to 14. And so, to just put this passage in context, what we have here is the account of Jesus' arrest. Before this, there are five chapters describing the Last Supper. And after this follows Jesus' trial, his crucifixion and his death. But these verses transition us between the two, don't they? as Jesus goes from being a free man to being an apprehended, convicted and executed criminal. And there's an awful lot of information in these verses, but as we consider them today, I want us to hone in and to dwell on six short phrases. Six phrases that enable us to enter into this story and to better understand our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first of those is in verses 2 and 3 where it says, Jesus had often met there with his disciples, so Judas came to the garden. Having left the upper room where they had celebrated the Passover, Jesus and his closest friends now travelled on foot across the Kidron Valley to a garden. And the other Gospels tell us that this was the Garden of Gethsemane. But we're told here that Jesus and his disciples often met in this place. They had just come from a, a random house where no one would have expected them to be, but now they went to a place that they went to regularly. And so Judas knew exactly where to find them. But you may think, so what? Well, my friends, by this point, Jesus well and truly knew that something was afoot, that there were rumblings going on, that things were looking grim. Back in chapter 11, just after Lazarus was raised from the dead, we're told there that many people believed in Jesus. And as a result, the chief priests and the Pharisees were jealous and they were concerned. 
In fact, Caiaphas, the high priest, piped up at that time and he said, you don't realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And so it says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. And then as Passover approached, it says, they kept looking out for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Powerful leaders had enlisted the entire population to find Jesus so that they could carry out their murderous plan. And so he'd quite literally been in hiding. But during that final supper, Jesus also predicted that one of his own disciples would be the one who would betray him. And then he made it clear who that was and he sent him away. And that man, of course, was Judas. And so when Jesus left the upper room, he could have stayed out of the public eye. He could have found somewhere to hide where no one would look. He could have left the city altogether. But the time had come. The rage of the Jewish leaders was at its peak and the betrayer had been dispatched. And so, my friends, we're astonishingly told that Jesus went to exactly that place where he had so often met with his disciples. And so Judas came to that garden knowing that he would be there. He came with a detachment, we're told, of Roman soldiers and officials from the chief priests and Pharisees, probably over a hundred men altogether, carrying torches and lanterns and weapons, for they had come to find him, they had come to overpower him, and they had come to capture him. But I ask you this morning, what sort of person does this? What sort of person knows that there is a price on their head and that powerful people are out to kill them, but yet they willingly go to the very place where they will be found? I don't think that I'd do that, and I don't think that you would either. But yet Jesus did. He voluntarily and intentionally gave himself up. But why? Well, let's go further and see. For this leads now to the, the second phrase which I want to focus on, which is in verse 4. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. Now, this verse is important because it stops us from getting any idea that Jesus was giving himself up in the hope that everything would be all right in the hope that he would be treated justly, that his punishment would be mild, that he would eventually be released. Think about this. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. He knew that he would be bound and arrested like a criminal. He knew that his disciples would desert him and Peter would deny him three times. He knew that he would be interrogated by the high priests and beaten when he told them the truth. He knew that he would be falsely accused 
and that the Roman governor Pilate would, would find him innocent, but yet would be too weak to stand up to the Jews. He knew that soldiers would flog him ruthlessly with whips, forcing an agonising crown of thorns upon his head, draping a purple robe across his, his shoulders and mocking him mercilessly. He knew that the crowds would be baying for his blood. Crucify him, crucify him, they would cry. He knew that he would have to carry his own cross in humiliation to Golgotha, where he would be stripped naked and then nails would be driven through his hands and through his feet. He knew that he would be lifted up there and left agonisingly suspended, slowly suffocating, waiting to die. And he knew that at that very time, even his own father would forsake him, laying upon him a divine wrath and punishment so unspeakable that it would make even the human torture he had endured seem trivial. My friends, Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him, every last detail. He wasn't under any illusions that he would receive some kind of mercy, some kind of last-minute reprieve. He faced his fate not only willingly, but he faced it knowingly, in full awareness of what they would do to him. And so he went out to meet the mob. What was he thinking? They say that the only thing worse than torture itself is the anticipation of torture, knowing the excruciating things that will be done to you. And Jesus knew them full well, but yet he went out to meet the mob. Why would he do that? Well, a third phrase that we want to, uh, want to focus on is in verse 6. In verse 6 it says, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus had gone out to, to meet this mob of Jewish thugs and Roman military and he asked them who they wanted. They said, Jesus of Nazareth, to which he replied, I am he. But to be totally precise, he said in Greek, ego eini which is literally translated, I am. And replying in this particular way, Jesus, Jesus was alluding to a time long ago when Moses had stood before the burning bush. And at that time, the Lord said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And at that time, the Lord revealed for the very first time his divine, personal covenant name, the name Yahweh. And in replying this way, Jesus connected himself to the divine name of God Almighty. And as he revealed just this tiny glimpse of his true identity, the entire crowd of armed and powerful men drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine it? He spoke two short words 
and a violent mob is flattened. And thus Jesus reminds us of a very vital fact. He reminds us that he was not the victim here. He was not presenting himself to be arrested because he thought it was inevitable. Because he thought there was nothing else he could do to get away. Get away. My friends, in Matthew 26, he said to Peter, Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In John chapter 9, Pilate said, Don't don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? To which Jesus replied, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And my friends, we only need to think about all those awesome miracles to know the immense forces that were at his disposal. Jesus, he could so easily have escaped this mob. And this small hint of his power in the revelation of his name proves that it is true. But yet he didn't. For when they gathered themselves up and stood before him once more, he didn't resist them in any way. Friends, how many people do you know who have the power to avoid trouble or suffering, but yet they choose not to use it? Not many, I would say. But Jesus did just that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he gave himself up willingly and intentionally, with full knowledge of what lay ahead, and despite the fact that he could easily have stopped it at any moment he chose to. So what's going on here? Well, that brings us to a fourth phrase in verse 8. For in the midst of this scene, Jesus says, If you are looking for me, then let these men go. You see, Jesus and his disciples had been a close-knit team now for more than three years. And so we would expect that if the mob were after Jesus, then they'd be only too happy to get hold of his closest followers as well. Why do you think Peter was so adamant in denying Jesus those three times? It's because he knew that he too could be arrested. He too could be put on trial. He too could be put to death. But here in the garden, where there was no denying their association, Jesus tells the mob to let his followers go. Isn't that just amazing? In the midst of his own trauma, Jesus is concerned not about himself, but about his friends. And why? Well, because he loved them, and he cared about them, and he wanted to protect them. There's more to it than that, isn't there? Don't forget what John says next. He says, this happens so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. You see, friends, John is connecting what happens here to this verse, in this verse, to something that Jesus said back in chapter 6. For back in chapter 6, Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone 
who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. You see, Jesus' desire to to protect his disciples from being arrested, it's pointing to something much deeper. For here in these words, he begins to reveal just why he would willingly suffer. He would suffer out of love for his disciples, somehow protecting them, saving them and giving them eternal life. He would suffer out of love for you and me, somehow protecting us, saving us and giving us eternal life. And so the events that were about to unfold, they were not meaningless. This was not some tragic end to a good man's life, but rather these events were central to the Father's plan and the very reason why Jesus came. For these events are inseparably tied to his mission to rescue all who believe in him. But how can that be? Well, come to me to verse 11, where we find the fifth phrase that we want to focus on today. For there Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, Peter, in his usual way, had tried to take matters into his own hands. He grabbed out his sword and he took a swing at the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. But rather than being impressed, Jesus was in fact furious. He commanded Peter to put that sword away. And why? Was it because they were outnumbered and and putting up a fight was futile? No, not at all. It was because Peter was now standing in the way of his mission. And so he says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? In these words, he reveals a little more of how his suffering was connected to our salvation. For in a rather unusual turn of phrase, he speaks now of a cup. But what on earth could Jesus mean? Well, my friends, think of Psalm 75. Psalm 75, where it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth Drink it down to its very dregs. In Jeremiah chapter 25, it says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. And in Revelation chapter 14, we're told, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. My friends, this is the cup, the cup of God's wrath. It's a cup that contains the righteous anger and fury of Almighty God against all the rebellion and wickedness of the human race. 
It's a cup that contains the judgment and punishment that you and I totally and eternally deserve. But yet here in our text, it's not us. It's not us who is drinking that cup, is it? But it's Jesus. It's the perfect, holy Son of God who says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? But why? Why is Jesus going to suffer this horrendous judgment? He's the only one who doesn't deserve it. So why would he be punished so severely? Well, the answer lies in our final phrase in verse 14, where it says, it would be good if one man died for the people. What we have here is the totally ignorant, but yet totally accurate prophecy of the high priest Caiaphas. For as we saw earlier, Caiaphas was the one in chapter 11 who spoke these words. And what he meant was that by getting rid of Jesus, it would help the, high, the chief priests and the Pharisees to regain control and, and the people could then live in peace once more. But in these very words, he unintentionally described the true mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he had most certainly come to suffer and die. But it was as he suffered and died at the hands of men that he would drink the cup of God's wrath. And that's because he drank it for the people. It's because he drank it for us. You see, my friends, on that horrible but yet glorious cross, the Father took all of your sins and all of my sins and the sins of every person who believes. And he laid that upon his son. On the cross, Jesus willingly bore the punishment for every wrong thing that we have ever done. He took our proud and lustful thoughts. He took our crude and hurtful words. He took our selfish and angry actions. He took our small sins and our enormous ones, our public sins and our secret ones, our past sins and our future ones. And he paid the price for every single one. And because he did, we can experience forgiveness that eradicates our shame and refreshes our soul. Because he did, we can experience a reconciliation with our God that removes all of our fears and fills us with joy. Because he did, our lives are transformed as we experience the Lord's love every single day and his peace in our hearts and his hope for all eternity. And so Caiaphas was right. It truly was good that one man died for all the people. But my friends, I want to ask you now, what does this passage really teach us about our Lord Jesus Christ? What does it reveal to us about his heart? Well, it shows us the amazing depths 
of his love and his kindness and his care and his compassion for sinners and sufferers just like us. For while compassion may well be in short supply in this world, in Jesus we find it in abundance. For he went to that cross and he went there willingly. He may have well, well have been in anguish about it. He may well have asked his father for some way around it. He may well have sweated blood because of it. But when the rubber hit the road, he went to that garden where he knew that they would find him. And my friends, he went to that cross knowingly. He was completely and painfully aware of everything that would happen. He knew the horror that lay ahead. And he went to that cross despite the fact that he, he could have stopped at any time. He was no victim. He's the Son of God Almighty. Yet he laid aside his power in order to suffer in this way. And all because he loves us. He chose to suffer so that we will never have to. He chose to die so that we can have eternal life. And as he drank that cup that should have been ours, he drained it of every last drop. And as he did, he was taking our place. One man giving his life for his people, for all who cling to him in faith. But I want to ask you now, have you personally experienced the astonishing compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you know about it. But yet, for some reason, you're still living in the darkness, still carrying the weight, the unbearable weight of your own sin. My friends, we need to realise that our Lord Jesus is full of love for the lost, for lost and lonely people just like us. He loves us. He loves you. He loves you more than you will ever be able to comprehend. And the very reason why he came was because he cares for you so deeply. He cares about our predicament. He has sympathy for our suffering. He desires with all his heart to redeem us for eternal life in glory with him. And so he laid aside his glory and he went to the cross where he gave up everything to save us. That's how great his compassion is. And so I want to urge you this morning to receive it to embrace it and to rejoice in it. Have you been seeking compassion in your life? Well, you truly can find it and experience it today in the grace and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are a good good God, a loving Father, a Father who gave your own Son. Lord Jesus, 
You are the Son of Almighty God. All power rested upon you, but yet you put it aside and humbled yourself. Humbled yourself unto death on a cross. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that all of this was done out of love for us. For you so love this world that you gave your only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Father, help us to know your love. Jesus, help us to know your compassion for us. Help us to know in our own hearts that we are not lost anymore, but that you have rescued us and you have blessed us so richly that you have given us all that we need and so much more. Father God, help us to know in our hearts that we can be filled with a joy that cannot even be explained. Father, that we can have peace every day of our lives, that we can look forward to the future with confidence knowing that even in the hardest of times, you will never let us go, that we are safe in your arms, that we are redeemed forever, and that one day you will take us home. Lord God, help us to know your compassion this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.